sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. And we are going to talk about other cool stuff today because I have with me Lynn Murphy, professor of linguistics at the University of Sussex in England, author of one of my favorite books of all time, The Prodigal Tongue, which is about the differences between American and British English. And today we're going to talk about that, but also about Wordle. Uh, Welcome, Lynn. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I am glad to have you here. So to give listeners a little bit of background, you and I were both guests on Editor Mark's, Mark Allen's um, annual Word of the Year. It's like a Zoom chat thing. And Wordle came up. Do you remember why we were talking about Wordle in the first place? Well, we must have been talking about it because it was the topic of many Word of the Year conversations. So it was Cambridge Dictionary's Word of the Year was Homer because it was a wordle word that had been looked up a lot by people who were frustrated by being a wordle word. But all of the editors of all of the dictionaries were there were talking about the wordle effect in their dictionary lookups that, you know, on certain days there would be huge numbers of lookups because some word that was a little bit difficult came up in wordle. Um, and I remember um, some of the ones that Cambridge Dictionary had as their high lookup ones were things like humor with the American spelling or mm-hmm. caulk, which is a much more used in America word than in Britain. Um, but on the other hand, in 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 Merriam-Webster, the American Dictionary, people were looking up words like voila or loamy, mm. so words that felt more foreign in America. So it's it was interesting to watch the back and forth between players of the game in both countries um, and what they found difficult and that what is... that tells us about our vocabularies. Yeah. So do you hear people around you in Britain complaining about words that are too American on certain days? On certain days, yes, Um, although there are a fair number of British Wordle players who just, you know, take it in their stride and think, you know, it's a game that's, you know, started in America, albeit by a Welshman. Um, But he was a Welshman that had, who had lived in the U.S. for quite a while. He was making the game for his British, or sorry, for his American girlfriend. And so it was American spellings that went in. And, of course, when the New York Times bought it, it was American spellings that stayed. Um, But, yeah, so every time there's, you know, humor or tumor or honor, any of those words without the you, you'll get get some mild griping on Twitter about it. (laughs) That makes sense. In fact, I remember it. When it was Homer, 
that I remember particularly a cartoonist over here in Britain. Um, months later, he was still tweeting about it, saying, I still haven't forgiven Wordle for Homer. <laughs> you know? And is Homer... Because it ruined his streak. Is it not? Oh, it ruined his streak. Yeah, those streaks matter. <laughs> um, is Or we get attached to them, at least. Is... um. Is Homer isn't as popular in Britain because baseball isn't popular in Britain? Is that why? Yeah, baseball is not popular at all in Britain, although a lot of baseball phrases have showed up in Britain, like, you know, talking about stepping up to the plates or, um, you know, doing a home run. British people would definitely understand that. But the more colloquial talking about a Homer was not as familiar that said, there are some uses of Homer in British English. They're just not very common uses. So pigeon racers call their birds homers. Um, there's a Scottish usage of the word homer, which means a job that somebody does in somebody's home. So like if, you, if you're if you a hairdresser and you do a house call, that's a homer. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, so there are... There are some uses of Homer in Britain, but not everybody uses them. So it was a word that stumped a lot of people. Yeah. I, I'm not certain I would have thought of it. I'm not a big baseball baseball fan myself. When I hear Homer, the first thing I think of is the Simpsons of Homer Simpson. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of people when they uh, got the answer or didn't get the answer. The tweets that were going out that day were all dough. <laughs> In a sort of very Homer Simpson way. Oh, that's very clever. <laughs> so one of the things you said in the Zoom call we were on is that um, English is well-suited for um, games with five-letter words. And I thought that was intriguing. I'm, I've become a little bit obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> I So I was thinking about how there is pretty much no position in a five-letter word where any of our 26 letters cannot go. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. There are three things you cannot do with five letters. You cannot have a word that ends with a J, a word that ends with a V, or a word that has Q as its second-to-last letter. But other than that, I've you know, there are words with every, you know, you can have an A in first position, second person to third position, et cetera, a B in all those positions, a C in all those positions. So that makes it a really wide open playing field. And if you compare Wordle with other word games with other word lengths, um, so there's Wurgle with a G, which has six mm -hmm. letters, which does use British spelling. So, you know, and today the answer was honor with a U, H-O-N-O-U-R. Um, but, you play if you play Wurgle, you will get Wurgle two or three guesses. It's very rare to go beyond three guesses in Wurgle with six letters, because with six letters the words are much more predictable. You know, so hmm. there are lots of words that end with er. There are lots of words that end with ly. There are lots of words that start with re or de or in, and so they get very very repetitive. Versus the five letter words. We've got all these nice old English words that have lots of consonants together, you know, clump, stamper, you know, lots, lots of consonants. We've got all sorts of borrowings from all sorts of languages. So 
Shake was one, S-H-E-I-K, was one that mm-hmm. stumped a lot of people. We just said voila was another one. Words like kayak or, you know, uh, fjord, you know. Put all these letters in different combinations and make it just that little bit trickier to solve. So even though there are only 2,000 words that can be the answer in Wordle, and there are only less than 10,000 or around 10,000 five-letter words in the English language altogether um, that you could play in Wordle. They won't be the answer, but you can play a lot more words than will be the answer. Um, What you can do with those words is really, really varied. Another thing is that in five letters, you can have one, two, or three syllables. Hmm. Right. So, so if we were doing four-letter words, you could only get up to two syllables. But, but because we've got that five, we've got so much more flexibility and so much more unpredictability about where those letters are going to go. So it makes it fun, I think. Yeah. I, it's funny. I think that if you had asked me, I would have thought the one that has more letters, six instead of five, it would have been harder to solve. It would because there, there's so many more places you could put letters. <laughs> yeah. There are more, there are more words, you know, so there are about t- 20,000, um, six letter words, but a higher proportion of those end with R than the proportion of five letter words that end with R, you know, and, and so where those letters can go, it's just a lot more limited um, in certain ways. And now you yeah. said that there are 2,000 five letter words you can play in Wordle, but I think you said there are 10,000. No, there's 10. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. So can you play all, but can you play all 10,000 in Wordle? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, the Wordle dictionary is much bigger than the Wordle solution list. So you could put so you could put in the word Xenix, X E N I C mm-hmm. into Wordle and it'll tell you how many letters you got right, but that's never gonna be the answer oh. to Wordle. Oh, so the so solution you can list. use those yeah, is much smaller. I I imagine, do you know, did they do that? Because, I mean, I, when you said that word, I was like, I would never in a million years have guessed that word. That's too hard. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you can also put in words like plurals, right? So I could put in something like um, barks or something like that with an S. That's never going to be the answer. There are no, you know, S ending four letter words that have been made plural oh. in the solution. But you could play it. And be told how many of those letters are right. Oh, that's really so. Is that are those instructions buried somewhere on the site, or did you learn that through uh, some magical linguist place? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I suspected it when I started playing that they weren't going to be filling it up with words that st- end with s. Um, yeah, and that's why if you ever play the spelling bee, the New York Times spelling bee, which is another great word game, there's never an s. In the spelling bee, because to add in the words that could end in s is just makes things ridiculous. So I, I suspected it, but it, then I got my hands on the word list. What are the solutions? And yeah, then I knew for sure. Oh, that's really fascinating. So, do you play every day? Um, most days, you know. Some days I forget and yeah. lose my streak. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and I, I started out, I, 
you asked before about my my saying that English is particularly good with five letter yeah. words. I was when I started out, I was also playing it in Swedish. I mean, not Wordle, but the Wordle equivalents in Swedish and French. Oh my gosh! Thinking this will this will help me with thinking about Swedish and French, um, but they're just not as fun to play in and why is in that? those languages. Well, Swedish has got nine vowels, and it's just a lot harder <laughs> when you've got nine vowels to figure out what's the vowel in this word. Um, so Swedish is a lot harder, and French is a lot more boring because it does not have all of the different word shapes that English has. So it does not have large numbers of complex uh consonant clusters at the ends of words and things like that so yeah do you think is that because english has borrowed words from so many different languages that it's just more varied is that you think that's why i I, part of it's that and then part of it i think it's also that we're probably more less likely than french to nativize the spellings of those in certain ways or the way that we nativize the spelling of those might be more fast and loose with spelling rules because English spelling rules are so unpredictable anyway. So French spelling rules, there are a lot of silent letters in French, but when you see a CH, you know pretty much how it's going to be pronounced. When you see an S, you pretty much know how it's going to be pronounced versus English where things are a lot messier. Mm-hmm. That reminded me of that. ends up. Yeah. When I was talking Sorry. to the people who do the um, spelling bee, the, the Scripps National Spelling Bee, there aren't really spelling bees in Spanish, for example, because it's just really clear how you would spell a word or say a word based on its spelling. <laughs> yeah. And that's why English is such a great language for spelling based word games, because there is just so much you can do with it and so much variety. Yeah. What's an example of a, a word? You're talking about nativizing words in English. What's an example you can give people? Well, I mean, part of the problem with doing this is that I don't know offhand what what the originals would be. But, you know, say something like, um, like kayak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether we're using K's happily because we use K's. But we're also happy to have the C stand for the cuss sound, you know, we, or CK to, to stand for the cuss sound. But when we take kayak, we when we borrow kayak, we just put Ks in there. It makes it look like a non-English borrowing and that sort of thing. Um, if you were borrowing into a language with a more rigid spelling system, you know, you might have to, say, change those K's into Q-U's because that's how you spell the cuss sound in that language. Or you might have to you know, keep them as, make them C's because that's how you spell them in that language. So English allows us to make some choices about how how we spell those things. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it, Wordle's been really interesting for me because um, I stopped playing a while ago because I developed this strategy that then I could solve it every time and then it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> so I got, um, I came up with four five letter words 
that all had different letters. So I covered all the words of the alphabet in four words, and I would just enter those four words in the first four spaces every time. And then whether I got anything right or not, I just entered those words. And then by the fifth time, I could get it right every time. Mm-hmm. And so it, mm-hmm. it took away the whole challenge. But then I couldn't go back to making myself do it the fun way either, since I knew there was a way to always win, <laughs> basically. Have you heard of... Uh, do you have thoughts about that? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I expect to win. You know, I never expect to lose a Wordle. Um, my, you know, and I have, you know, two or three times, but I I go in expecting to win. And so what I'm always trying to do is to keep my average down. Mm. So, and I think a frustrating thing about the New York Times interface is it tells you how many um you've succeeded in getting it in four guesses or three guesses or five guesses. Um, but they don't give you your average. You do have to figure that out yourself. But, you know, my aim is is to get further and further away from four and further and further closer to three. Um, so there's that. I also amuse myself by, you know, my starting words. So that keeps it a little bit fresh for me. So last year... I just, I always did a starting word that made me think of my day. You know, mm. if it was a day that was, um, well, I, I wouldn't, I was going to say if it was sunny, I would do sunny, but I wouldn't because that's got two ends. But, you know, if there, if it was overcast, I might start with cloud. If it, you know, was um, my, my birthday, I might start with gifts, you know. I'd do something that would make it interesting to me and then see, could I still do it in less, in four or fewer if I change my word. Um, this year, my New Year's resolution was to use the word grand more uh-huh. because I love it when Irish people say things are grand all the time. And it was just a silly a silly New Year's resolution. The only thing I've succeeded in is I always start Wordle with grand. Uh-huh. And now I'm seeing how that changes my game, you know, so. That is grand. You can, you can find other ways to have <laughs> That is grand. I love that. Those are good ideas to make it more interesting or meaningful or to pick a word that has some meaning. Um, maybe not focus so much on I mean, winning. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it makes it interesting. You know, if you're interested in words, it makes it interesting to think about how has choosing this word changed my experience of the game today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Very nerdy. No, I love it. I totally love it. It's grand. It's grand. <laughs> so um, so I, I want to wrap up, totally switch gears. Well, first, let's take a break uh, for our sponsor, and we'll be right back, and we'll talk about this amazing thing about British English. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules? only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. 
for a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey there, if you are a curious person who loves to learn, there's another podcast I think you'll really enjoy. Freakonomics Radio is hosted by best-selling author Stephen Dubner and drives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why using swear words is more important than you think and the psychology behind why projects are always late. New episodes of Freakonomics Radio are available every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Thank you so much, Lynn. Um, So Lynn also has this amazing blog called Separated by a Common Language. Did I get that right? Is that, yep. yeah, correct. Oh, yes. Separated by a common language. It's about American English and British English. It goes back as long as the Grammar Girl podcast goes back, maybe longer. And I stumbled across one of your very old blog posts the other day that blew my mind. And that's the beauty of this sort of evergreen content that we both do. It's relevant, you know, 15 years later. So British people, they say, um, and uh, just like American people do, but they just spell it differently. And my whole life, I thought they were saying er <laughs> because of the way it's spelled. Please t- talk about this difference. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's again about spelling, you know. So, I mean, I'm not going to say they say exactly the same vowel sound as Americans do when we pause. You know, it might be a little bit different. But, yeah, they're not saying er and erm. Um <laughs> when you see ERM or ER in a, in a book. And I discovered this. I mean, I'd lived here for um, seven years when I had a baby here. And when I had a baby here, I watched a lot of subtitled television. And that's when I discovered it because the people, the American people on Scrubs or whatever it is I was watching in the middle of the night, were saying, um... And it was being subtitled as E-R-M because that's how you spell the pause sound in British English. Because in British English, in, in most British Englishes, or most English Englishes at least, you don't pronounce an R after a vowel. So that R there is is not signaling er. It's signaling the quality of the vowel before. So it's not M, it's M. You know, so, so that's all it's doing. And related to that, I'm currently doing, I've been doing research on the word please for a long time. And last week, I was doing some research on when you say, please. Oh, yeah. Right, that that kind of exasperated please. Um, and I was looking in internet corpora, so collections of text, um, to see how are people spelling this. And Americans will spell it P-U-H. Please, mm-hmm. 
very often, a few other ways, but mostly P-U-H. And the British uh, writers were spelling it P-U-R. With an, oh, man. So the same thing. Um, so they're not saying pearlies. They're saying pearlies. Um, it's just the way you spell it. Wow. I would never in a million years put an R there. <laughs> what, so it makes me think of, I'm trying to think of an example. And um, I remember reading that um, the, the British are more likely to use further than farther because farther sounds a lot like father in British English well, because they don't pronounce the R. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I don't know if that's why they don't use it as much, but um, British people are generally not taught a farther, 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 sorry, farther, <laughs> further distinction. Um, and so it's not something that people worry about here. Hmm. Oh, interesting. That's interesting, too. There are a lot of rules that Americans learn as, you know, don't write this, don't say this, or say it this way, not that way, that are just completely foreign to British writing and British editing. Huh. And that's one of them. I would think it would be the other way around because people view Americans as so much more permissive, typically. But you would think that. But anybody, any British author who's been edited in America knows, knows that this is the way it is. So, so many authors I've spoken to who complain about that American editor turned all my witches into that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a huge complaint by British authors because it's not a distinction that's maintained in Britain as much. Do you feel like there are the same number of rules generally and they're just different? Or do Americans just have more ticky-tacky weird little rules? I think the difference is that in Britain, what really matters is your accent. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come out on the page. So if people are going to be judgmental about language, they're usually judgmental about spoken language. And so with grammar, there's a um, linguist named Linda Pellier who's done some studies on how American editors and British editors work differently. And she's found that American editors, they know the rules. They can recite, you know, things from Strunk and White or things from the Chicago Manual or things like that. They know their rules, whereas British editors tend to edit by ear. Does it sound right? And not think so much about the rules. So where British people can be very judgmental about pronunciation, Americans are very judgmental about grammar. That's fascinating. And that's how, where we make our differentiations a bit. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to have to have you back no to talk about more of these amazing things in the future. For now, we'll wrap it up. Um, again, Lynn Murphy, author of The Prodigal Tongue. You should buy this book. It's amazing if you enjoyed our conversation. And um, thanks, Lynn. Thank you so much. It's been, a, it's been grand to talk with you today. <laughs> thanks so much. It has been grand. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart? every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.